Chapter Twenty Nine of the Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Miriam Esther Goldman. The Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate by Eliza P. Donner Houghton. Chapter Twenty Nine. Chapter Twenty Nine. Great Smallpox Epidemic, St. Mary's Hall, Thanksgiving Day in California, Another Brother-in-Law. Mrs. Bruner has become too childish to have the responsibility of young girls, had been frequently remarked before Aletha's visit, and after her departure the same friends expressed regret that she had not taken us away with her. These whispered comments, which did not improve our situation, suddenly ceased, for the smallpox made its appearance in Sonoma and helpers were needed to care for the afflicted. Grandma had had the disease in infancy, and could go among the patients without fear. In fact, she had such confidence in her method of treating it, that she would not have Georgia and me vaccinated while the epidemic prevailed, insisting that if we should take the disease she could nurse us through it without disfigurement, and we would thenceforth be immune. She did not expose us during what she termed the catching stage, but after that had passed, she called us to share her work, and become familiar with its details, and taught us how to brew the teas, make the ointments, and apply them. I do not remember a death among her patients, and only two who were badly disfigured. One was our pretty Miss Sally Lewis, who had the dread disease in confluent form. Grandma was called hurriedly in the night because the afflicted girl in delirium had loosened the straps which held her upon her bed, and while her attendant was out of the room had rushed from the house into the rain, and was not found until after she had become thoroughly drenched. Grandma had never before treated such serious conditions, yet strove heroically and helped to restore Miss Sally to health, but could not keep the cruel imprints from her face. The other was our arch-enemy, Castle, who seemed so near death that one night as Grandma was peering into the darkness for signal lights from the homes of the sick, she exclaimed impulsively, "'Hark, children, there goes the Catholic bell! Count its strokes! Castle is a Catholic, and was very low when I saw him to-day.' Together we slowly counted the knells until she stopped us, saying, "'It's for somebody else. Castle is not so old.' She was right. Later he came to us to recuperate, and was the most exacting and profane man we ever waited on. He conceived a special grudge against Georgia, whom he had caught slyly laughing when she first observed the change in his appearance. Yet months previous he had laid the foundation for her mirth. He was then a handsome, rugged fellow, and particularly proud of the shape of his nose. Frequently he had twitted my sensitive sister about her little nose, and had once made her very angry in the presence of others, by offering to tell her a story, then continuing, God and the devil take turns in shaping noses. Now look at mine, large and finely shaped. This is God's work, but when yours was growing it was the devil's turn, and he shaped that little dab on your face and called it a nose. Georgia fled and cried in anger over this indignity, declaring that she hated Castle and would not be sorry if something should happen to spoil his fine nose. So when he came to us from the sick-room, soured and crestfallen, because disease had deeply pitted and seamed that feature which had formerly been his pride, 
She laughingly whispered, "'Well, I don't care. My nose could never look like his, even if I had the smallpox, for there is not so much of it to spoil.' Our dislike of the man became intense, and later, when we discovered that he was to be bartender at Grandpa's bar and boarded at our house, we had an indignation meeting in the back yard. This was more satisfaction to Georgia than to me, for she had the pleasure of declaring that if Grandma took that man to board, she would be a Schweitzer child no longer, she would stop being German, make her clothes like American children's, and that she knew her friend Mrs. Bergwald would give her a home if Grandma should send her away. Here the meeting was suddenly interrupted by the discovery that Grandma was standing behind us. We did not know how long she had been there, nor how much she had overheard, nor which she meant to strike with the switch she had in her hand. However, we were sitting close together, and my left arm felt the sting, and it aroused in me the spirit of rebellion. I felt that I had outgrown such correction, nor had I deserved it, and I told her that she should never, never strike me again. Then I walked to the house alone. A few moments later, Georgia came up to our room and found me dressing myself with greatest care. In amazement, she asked, "'Eliza, where are you going?' and was dumbfounded when I answered, "'To find another home for us.' In the lower hall I encountered Grandma, whose anger had cooled, and she asked the question Georgia had. I raised my sleeve, showed the welt on my arm, and replied, "'I'm going to see if I can't find a home where they will treat me kindly.' Poor Grandma was conscience-stricken, drew me into her own room, and did not let me leave it until after she had soothed my hurts and we had become friends again. Georgia went to Mrs. Bergwald's and remained quite a while. When she came back speaking English and insisting that she was an American, Grandma became very angry and threatened to send her away among strangers, then hesitated, as if realizing how fully Georgia belonged to me and I to her, and that we would cling together whatever might happen. In her perplexity, she besought Mrs. Bergwald's advice. Now Mrs. Bergwald was a native of Stockholm, a lady of rare culture, and used the French language in conversing with Grandma. She spoke feelingly of my little sister, and that she was companionable, willing, and helpful, anxious to learn the nicer ways of work and ladylike accomplishments. She could see no harm in Georgia wishing to remain an American, since to love one's own people and country was natural. Thereafter Grandma changed her methods. She gave us dolls to look at and keep among our possessions, likewise most of our keepsakes. She also unlocked her carefully tended parlor, and we spent three pleasant evenings there. Sometimes she would let us bring her from under the sofa her gorgeous prints, illustrating Wilhelm Tell, and would repeat the text relating to the scenes as we examined each picture with eager interest. We were also allowed to go to Sunday school oftener, and later she sent me part of the term to the select school for girls recently established by Dr. Vermeer, an Episcopalian clergyman. In fact, my tuition was expected to offset the school's milk bill, yet that did not lessen my enthusiasm. I was eager for knowledge. I also expected to meet familiar faces in that great building, which had been the home of Mr. Jacob Lease. But upon entering, I saw only finely dressed young ladies from other parts of the state promenading in the hall, and small girls flitting about in the yard like bright-winged butterflies. Some had received letters from home and were calling out the news, others were engaged in games that were strange to me. 
The bell rang. I followed to the recitation hall and was assigned a seat below the rest, because I was the only small Sonoma girl yet enrolled. I made several lifelong friends at that institute. Still, it was easy to see that St. Mary's Hall was established for pupils who had been reared in the lap of wealth and ease, not for those whose hands were rough like mine. Nor was there a class for me. I seemed to be between grades and had the discouragement of trying to keep up with girls older and farther advanced. My educational advantages in Sonoma closed with my half-term at St. Mary's Hall, Grandma believing that I had gone to school long enough to be able to finish my studies without teachers. Georgia was more fortunate. When Miss Hutchinson opened the young lady's seminary in the fall, Grandma decided to lend it a helping hand by sending her a term as a day scholar. My delighted sister was soon in touch with a crowd of other little girls, and brought home many of their bright sayings for my edification. One evening she rushed into the house, bubbling over with excitement, and joyously proclaimed, "'Oh, Eliza, Miss Hutchinson is going to give a great dinner to her pupil on Thanksgiving Day, and I am to go, and you also, as her guest.' Grandma was pleased that I was invited, and declared that she would send a liberal donation of milk and cheese as a mark of appreciation. I caught much of George's spirit of delight, for I had a vivid recollection of the grand dinner given in commemoration of our very first legally appointed Thanksgiving Day in California. I had only to close my eyes, and in thought would reappear the longest and most bountifully spread table I had ever seen. Turkey, chicken, and wild duck at the ends— a whole roasted pig in the center, and more than enough delicious accompaniments to cover the spaces between. Then, the grown folk dining first, and the flock of hungry children coming later, the speaking, laughing, and clapping of hands with which the old home customs were introduced in the new land. There I wore a dark calico dress and sunbonnet, both made by poor Mrs. McCutcheon of the Donner Party, who had to take in sewing for a livelihood, but to the seminary I should wear Grandpa's gift, a costly alpaca, changeable in the sunlight to soft mingling bluish and greenish colors of the peacock. Its wide skirt reached to my shoe-tops, and the gathers to its full waist were gauged to a sharp peak in front. A wide-open V from the shoulder down to the peak displayed an embroidered white Swiss chemisette. The sleeves, small at the wrist, were trimmed with folds of the material and a quilling of white lace at the hand. On the all-important morning, Grandma was anxious that I should look well, and after she had looped my braids with bows of blue ribbon and fastened my dress, she brought forth my dainty bonnet, her own gift. Deft fingers had shirred the pale blue silk over a frame which had been cut down from lady's size, arranged in an exquisite spray of marichal neal rosebuds and foliage on the outside, and quilled a soft white ruching around the face, which emphasized the Frenchy style and finish so pleasing to Grandma. Did I look old-fashioned? Yes, for Grandma said, Thou art like a picture I saw somewhere long ago. Then she continued brightly, Here are thy mitts and thy little embroidered handkerchief folded in a square. Carry it carefully so it won't get mussed before the company see it, and come not back late for milking. The seminary playground was so noisy with chatter and screams of joy that it was impossible to remember all the games we played, and later the dining-room and its offerings were so surprising and so beautifully decorated that the sight nearly deprived me of my appetite. 
"'Mumps! Bite a pickle and see if it ain't so!' exclaimed a neighbor to whom Georgia was showing her painful and swollen face. True enough, the least taste of anything sour produced the tell-tale shock. But the most aggravating feature of the illness was that it developed the week that Sister Aletha and Mr. Benjamin W. Wilder were married in Sacramento, and when they reached Sonoma on their wedding tour we could not visit with them, because neither had had the disease. They came to our house, and we had a hurried little talk with a closed window between us, and were favorably impressed by our tall brother Ben, who had very blue eyes and soft brown hair. He was the second of the three Wilder brothers, who had been among the early gold-seekers and tried roughing it in the mines. Though a native of Rhode Island and of Puritan ancestry, he was quite Western in appearance. Though not a wealthy man, he had a competency, for he and his elder brothers were owners of an undivided half of Ranchos de los Casadores, three leagues of land in Sacramento Valley, which was well stocked with horned cattle and good horses. He was also interested in a stage line running between Sacramento and the gold regions. He encouraged Aletha in her wish to make us members of their household, and the home they had to offer us was convenient to public schools, yet for obvious reasons they were now silent on the subject. End of chapter 29 Recording by Miriam Esther Goldman